say, how are we going to heal our land? Well, we're going to have to first let the Lord heal our hearts. And until that happens, uh, nothing's going to change, I hate to tell you. Mankind has never had the answer and still doesn't have the answer in and of themselves. I was thinking about this this past weekend. You know, of course, it is Fourth of July weekend, and, and we celebrate the, the uh, birth of our country. We celebrate the freedoms that we enjoy. You know, freedom is a distinctly biblical concept. It's a distinctly biblical concept. I didn't say it's a moral concept. It is a biblical concept. Uh, every other religion in the world always seeks to deal with the bondage of the human heart in one of two ways. It either seeks to dismiss it and pretend like it's not there or to displace it with other chains and other bonds. Uh, so many of the Eastern religions, they, they uh, begin from the precept and concept that you're good innately and you just need to tap into that goodness. Well, that can't satisfy the human heart. Because mankind knows that we're not good in and of ourselves. And so much of Western religion just seeks to uh, take the chains of sin and put the leash in the hands of some church or some priest or some, uh, some uh, clerics or whoever it might be. But the idea that God would take the chains that sin puts on us off of us and transform us so that we don't have to be bound, change us from the inside out, uh, and give us what the New Testament uh, topic and, and idea is individual soul liberty. What that means is I have a relationship with the Lord, and though it may communicate with the lives of others, it is my relationship with the Lord. It's not the state's responsibility to make me moral or righteous. state doesn't have the ability to make me moral or to make me righteous. Uh, and it is not society's responsibility to make me moral or to make me righteous, because society cannot do that. And I'm not moral and righteous in and of myself, but the sweet Holy Ghost can regenerate a man, change his life, and make him into what he ought to be. And so it is a biblical principle, freedom is. The idea that we would uh, have liberty and be able to be free to make our own choices and our own decisions, not have to have decisions made for us. Uh, understand that tyranny always comes with a smile. It always Tyranny always shows up in your best interest, quote unquote. But, you know, the Word of God gives us freedom and liberty in Jesus Christ. If the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. I'm afraid the kind of freedom that we're seeing today is freedom, but it ain't free indeed. But God says, I'm going to set you free, and I'm going to set you free indeed. You can follow me if you want to follow me. You can walk away from me if you want to walk away from me. But it's going to be your choice to make, your decision to make as an individual. So freedom is a distinctly biblical concept. And I think that one of the most appropriate places we can celebrate the concept of freedom is in the church house. Because it's there, if any man's free, he's been made free by Christ. Uh, he, he, may, he may have the uh, prerogative to make choices in his life, whatever they may be, but he doesn't have the power to make them unless Christ changes his life. Amen? We live in a time where the worst elements of uh, society are not only being uh, legislated into acceptability, but being celebrated. Uh, by society. And, and, you know, there's in some ways we have less freedoms today than we've had in our country. In other ways, we have more freedom societally to do pretty much any debauchery thing that we desire to do. But, you know, that, that isn't what makes a man free. Uh, sin, listen, sin is not the one that opens the cell door. Sin is the one that slams it shut. And the freedom to do what the devil wants is not freedom at all. But God, when He saves a man, He sets him free. And he can choose. He can choose now to live for Jesus Christ. I may preach here in a second, but 
the you know I, I I've heard I've heard parents say my you know my whole life in pastoring and stuff and and things parents will say well I just I want my kid to decide for themselves and I want them to have all the options available for them that's why I want them to have this very eclectic worldview or whatever it might be hey listen here's what I'm trying to do raising my young people I'm trying to show them that there is a better way to live the world you don't have to help the world show them how to live corruptly They're, the world's going to do that. But young people that grow up with never godly influence in their life, they think what the world is, is the only option there is. And see, when when the only freedom you've ever known is bondage, you call it freedom. Only when you've really seen the difference can you make a choice. And so I, I would say this, hey, listen, freedom is a biblical concept. We're celebrating freedom today. More than just the birth of our country, we're celebrating freedom on this day. And only Christ can make you free. Well, there's my 4th of July sermon. Don't don't get excited. We ain't going to go eat. I am going to preach. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 25. Uh, preachers will ask me sometimes and church members, they'll say, you know, do you preach a holiday message on holidays? And, and I'll tell you how it goes for me. I put an order in every year at every holiday with the Lord. I say, Lord, I'd like to. And sometimes he fills that order and sometimes he gives me something I didn't order. So uh, likewise, this year I said, Lord, it's, you know, it's 4th of July. All these people coming to eat barbecue and everything. I, they probably want to hear a 4th uh, a of July message. And he said, well, no. And so he gave me this message instead. Proverbs chapter 25. And we're going to read the first 10 verses of this chapter. Proverbs chapter 25. Uh, Verse number one, the word of God says, these are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. The heaven for height and the earth for depth and the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from the silver and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Take away the wicked from before the king and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king, and stand not in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said unto thee, Come up hither, than that thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. Go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof, when thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself, and discover not a secret to another, lest he that heareth it put thee to shame, and thine infamy turn not away. Let's, that's so good. Let's read a little more. Verse 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silk. As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. As the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him, for he refresheth the soul of his masters. Whoso boasteth himself with, uh, of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. Let's bow together and let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be here. Thank you for our country, Lord, but most of all, thank you for our Christ. Thank you for the freedom that the gospel gives us, Lord, in setting us free. It is not merely a freedom of, of uh, symbols and ceremony, but of substance, Lord. You have set us free from the bondage of sin. It does not mean we are not plagued by it, Lord, and you know that better than anyone, but I'm thankful we don't have to allow sin to be our master anymore in our life. But by the power of God, we can let you have victory. Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning in the preaching of thy word, that you'd speak to hearts. 
Lord, the work that needs to be done today, I cannot do and no man here can do to open the human heart, to reveal to us our greatest and deepest needs, Lord, to show us how that Christ is the answer for those things. Lord, we can give all the messages and sermons and explanations, but Lord, we know that you must open the human heart. So I pray that you do it today in such a way that bring you glory. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Proverbs chapter number 25, we have the beginning of a, of a transition point or a new section in the book of Proverbs. These are what we might call the posthumous works of Solomon, the king of Israel. Now let me say, lest there's any confusion, though Solomon may have been the one to hold the pen, we understand these aren't the words of Solomon, but they are the words of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every single bit of the Word of God is given by the Holy Ghost of God. And so God used human penmen with their thoughts and personalities and perspective, but He guided that pen in such a way. He he pressed on their hearts and molded their minds in such a way as to communicate His perfect words to us. Uh, We really don't know all the history behind these particular chapters of the book of Proverbs, uh, but we are told a little bit in verse number 1. It says these are also Proverbs of King Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. So what does that tell us about the verses that we've read this morning? Well, I would say it tells us three things. Number one, we see in these verses the Proverbs of Solomon. His thought, his ponderings, that for whatever reason he did not disclose publicly, it would appear as they were going through his effects that they came across these particular writings. You know, it's a reminder to me that sometimes God will give a word in season. Sometimes God knows when people will receive it. Sometimes God's got to do something in your life or in my life before we'll hear the Word of God. And it says the same thing it's always said, but it's not until God gets us in a right condition and position that we are willing to hear the truth of the Word of God. Oftentimes that's what God's doing in our life. He's getting us in a right condition to receive the truth of His Word. But then as I read the content of these uh, these Proverbs, I notice that they're not only the Proverbs of Solomon, but they are precepts for a sovereign. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, within these, we find counsel uh, on several matters, but particularly counsel that is given concerning the rule of a king. For instance, it says in verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. You want to know why there's no honor heaped upon our leaders today? Because they do not seek out and search out matters. Listen, the book of Habakkuk says that uh, that the law is slack and therefore judgment doth never go forth. That's the day that we live in today. You know what it's like to have, I'll just say this and then I'll preach a little bit. And we're, Listen, we got barbecue for you. Don't get impatient, all right? We love you. That's why we're cooking for you, amen? But uh, the <laughs> uh, slack in a rope, you know what slack in a rope is, right? you got a big old coil of rope, and maybe it's attached to a bell, Brother Ken, and you pull on that rope, and it's supposed to ring that bell. But what happens if there's slack in the rope? You can pull and pull and pull and pull, and that bell ain't never going to ring. You know what's a part of the problem in our justice system today? There's slack in the system. People will say, hey, listen, just go, file a report, make a complaint, send a letter, file a petition, file a lawsuit, whatever it might be. And that thing half the time dies 20 years later in court when they say, well, it just don't matter anymore. What is that? That's slack in the rope. And that way they can tell you, well, pull on the rope. And it makes you feel like you're doing something pulling on the rope. The only problem is that rope ain't never going to ring that bell. 
Uh, if we had a system where uh, matters were searched out, justice dispensed evenly and so on and so forth, there would be honor, more honor heaped upon. But uh, Solomon gives counsel to those ruler kings that would rule after him that it is his responsibility and duty to seek out justice. He goes on a little further. He says, verse 3, the heaven for height, the earth for depth, and the heart of kings is unsearchable. In other words, he's saying you need to have some depth. He's probably writing this with his son Rehoboam in mind. You need to have some depth of character, depth of being, not shallow, not superficial, not opportunistic, but there needs to be some depth in your heart and in your life. I think we'd be better off with that today. Verse number 4 says, Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. A finer is a silversmith, a man that works silver into a shape, into something functional. And then he explains what he means. Verse 5, he says, Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. In other words, let me say it this way. He looks at his son and he says, Rehoboam, if you surround yourself with craven, cowardly, wicked men, they will cripple your rule and your judgment. Uh, so it's not just the man on the throne, it's the people that surrounds him as well that make a significant difference. And on and on we could read. He talks in verse number 6, Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king and stand not in the place of great men. He's giving counsel concerning how to rule, what a throne should do, what it should appear like, how it should dispense justice. So these are precepts for a sovereign. But I'm particularly fascinated in verse number 2. And probably in verse number 2, I'm interested in the opposite thing that Solomon is interested in. When he pins this down, look again with me at verse 2. He says, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Is this not a fascinating, we could call it a paradox. The king, particularly of Israel, was to have the heart of God. He was to be the representative of God over the nation in dispensing judgment and dispensing justice to the people. In fact, we're told that God chose David because David was a man after God's own heart. And yet here we're told that there are two competing interests that are at play in the throne room. One is the glory of God, which desires to conceal things. And the other is the king's responsibility and duty and honor to search out a matter. In fact, when I read a little further through this, I start to see some sort of pictures bubbling up and imagery bubbling up that moves beyond just the matter of jurisdiction and jurisprudence. In fact, I'd say it this way. When I read this passage... I do see the Proverbs of Solomon. Undoubtedly, the Bible tells us that. I do see precepts for a sovereign. In other words, commandments and instructions for how a king is to rule. But when I read verse number 2, I am keenly aware all of a sudden that I'm also looking at a picture for sinners. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I think in the ten verses we've read, and we might even preach a little further than that this morning if God gives us time and liberty, I think we have a picture of what God has done for the lost sinner and how that sinner can come to know God through Jesus Christ in a personal way. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, a picture in the Proverbs. A picture for sinners in the book of Proverbs. Well, what do we read in these verses? Number one, I'd like for you to notice a word of conflict is presented in verse number two. As we've already said, there are two competing interests that are disclosed here. Whenever Solomon talks about concealing a thing, he's not talking about being secretive. He's not talking about being deceptive. But rather what he's saying is that it is the glory of God. It is the desire of God. It is the heart of God for the sins of mankind, for the unrighteousness of mankind 
mankind, for the crimes of mankind, uh, to be somehow dealt with in such a way that they are put out of way, put out of sight, and put out of being an obstacle in their relationship. On the opposite side, he says, but you know, uh, Rehoboam, it's your responsibility as a king to search out this matter. But can I remind you, listen, our God, He is the God of gods. That's what the book of Deuteronomy calls it. And the book of uh, 1 Corinthians makes clear to us that there are no other gods but the God of the Bible. But because the world worships false gods, God just wants to be clear in what He says, that amongst all those other false and pagan gods that are still worshipped today, that He is the God of gods, that even above those gods, He is God. But you know, the Bible tells me not only is He the God of gods, uh, but Revelation chapter 19 tells me of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, that He is the King of kings as well. Now, this is interesting. So He's both God and King. He has a desire to conceal a thing, but he has a duty to disclose a thing. This seems like a paradox, doesn't it? But it reminds me of God's attitude and disposition towards the sin problem of mankind. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I'd say this. The Bible makes abundantly clear that God's desire, yea, in fact, the most glorious thing that God has ever done is the concealing of mankind's sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, God has a desire to save men. We see what resides in the heart of God. There's sort of a funny papers concept of God, a superficial, shallow concept of God that He's sitting up in heaven angry all the time, mad all the time, just looking for some excuse to smite somebody and to strike somebody low. Now listen, I understand my Bible says God's angry with the wicked every day, but my Bible also says God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Listen, i got news for you. God's not sitting up in heaven stewing and mad that you ain't living right. He's sitting up in heaven with heart broken because He wants to save you and change your life. God's desire is to save mankind. And I, I would say this, hey, listen, uh, we've had a lot of talk about judicial matters this morning already, but if we were to take it to a court of law, I don't think anybody would doubt or dismiss God's evidentiary proof that He loves mankind. The Bible tells us He commendeth His love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He has proven to us uh, this uh, infantile elementary school concept of God as though He's cruel and craven and, and miserable and ugly and everything. Uh, you read the Bible through one time and you'll get over that. You say, but preacher, God did some God did some things, some cruel things in the Old Testament. We've defined them as cruel, although I'd say this, we don't see things the way God sees things. Uh, we don't see things the way that God sees things. We don't see the end of the matter at the beginning of a matter the way that God does. But even beyond that, I would say this, that in the Old Testament law, God met the cruelty of man's unrighteousness with the cruelty of justice and judgment. But we find that God sought a different way. God sought a better way. Uh, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that He sought a better covenant. A new way of dealing with mankind's sins. Not merely to snuff man out. Not merely to pour and heap upon him the due judgment for man's unrighteousness but rather to find a way to conceal that thing, to put away man's sin and to deal with it. God's desire is to save mankind. The book of Second Peter tells us this in no uncertain terms. Chapter 3, verse 9 says this, that the Lord is long-suffering to usward. And here's why. You know what long-suffering is, right? Uh, we've got, I, I've been praying for one of our, the Heatons. They're, they're heading up to, and I guess they're there now, up to Indiana to see her family and everything. And um, you want to know what long-suffering is? They were in that car for about nine hours with those three boys. Amen? And, and listen, their boys are better than my boys. I'm not criticizing, but I'm just saying, 
You take a road trip with your kids when they're little, and about hour six, you're going to learn what long-sufferingness is. Putting up with, right? Tolerating. God is long-suffering to usward. Here's why I'm not willing that any should perish. I know some people try to jump through hoops to make any mean some, but my Bible says any. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Hey, listen, this, this secular perspective on God that He's sitting up mad and angry all the time, and, and a part, part of that's born out of narcissism as though all of creation revolves around that lost person. But I would say this, that inasmuch as a person crosses the heart and mind of God, it's not in anger, it's not in spite, it's not in malice, but it's in pity and it's in mercy and it's in grace and it's in love. Uh, he loves you and I and He desires to save mankind. But there's a problem here. I said it's a word of conflict. Where's the conflict? Look at the next phrase. But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Why is it the honor of kings to search out a matter? Because they are fulfilling their duty. If a king is not going to dispense justice, what good is it having a king? If, if justice is not going to be even-handed, what's the purpose in having a king? Far better just to have an authoritarian or a totalitarian than to have a king. If you're going to have a king, he is to wield the sword of justice and judgment fairly, even-handedly, and righteously. He has a duty to justice. So we see what resides in the heart of God. Think with me for a moment about what's required by the holiness of God. If God is a holy God, He cannot merely disregard sin. He can't just ignore it. He can't just overlook it. He can't pretend that it never happened. In fact, I'd say this, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. And that's distinctly Old Testament language because that's how God dealt with man's sin in the Old Testament. He covered it up. The New Testament idea of how God deals with man's sin is not that He covers it up, but that He washes it away. That He takes it away. That He cleanses it from mankind. Uh, we find this language even in the book of, of Isaiah. You know, uh, when uh, Isaiah, uh, in the words of the Holy Ghost, says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God takes them away from the sinner in the New Testament. But we see here that God, even in concealing our sin, even in covering it up, there's a problem with that. You know what it is? God knows everything. He had to find some way to deal with man's sin. Man's sin could not be ignored. It couldn't be disregarded. You say, well, preacher, it wouldn't bother me if God ignored my sin. It would. The whole world would unravel if God was to just unjustly ignore man's sin. So how do you know that, preacher? Well, the Bible says that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. If the Word of God were proven to be untrue, the world itself would unravel. Now, you don't have to believe that. It doesn't matter to me whether you believe that or not. My Bible teaches that. Uh, that the reason that there's light is because God said, let there be light. The reason uh, that the firmament is separated from the waters of the earth is because God said, let there be a firmament. God said, let there be. His Word is the foundation of all that. And if His Word is violated, cast aside, proven to be untrue, then the very foundations of what this created world exists in begin to unravel. Uh, the laws of gravity quit making sense. Up doesn't mean up. Down doesn't mean down. The laws of thermodynamics uh, fall off the pages of science textbooks. If the Word of God were not true, our world literally could not function. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that by Him, by Jesus Christ, all things consist. And that word consist means to hold together. He, by His, by His perfect nature, and Him being the Creator, is the glue that bonds this created world together. So I'd say this, if God did just ignore your sin, you'd be in worse shape than you would be in God dealing with your sin. God can't merely ignore mankind's sin. He has a duty and responsibility to uphold holiness, to uphold righteousness, to uphold justness and justice in dealing with man's sin. So here we see a conflict. 
But that conflict really doesn't bring us any closer to hope. I, you know, I, I think most sinners don't have to be convinced they're in a mess. Most of them, if they were to ever really share, if they were ever to whisper the things that are bespoken in their heart in the darkest of nights, they'd admit their brokenness. They'd admit their loneliness. They'd admit their hopelessness and their sorrow, that there's nothing uh, that, uh, that is becoming that's living within them. Most people, if they were to be honest, would admit that. So the fact that there's just this conflict, God wants to save the sinner, but how can He save the sinner when they are indeed sinners? How can He maintain holiness and righteousness? How can He be a perfect and just God and still deal with man's sin? Well, here in verse number 3, we have a word of comfort. Verse 2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. And then almost like Solomon sits back and thinks beyond his own personal experience to another king in another place, one that sits on the throne of glory, he says, the heaven for height and the earth for depth and the heart of kings is unsearchable. What does Solomon mean by this? Well, there's basically two things he could be speaking of. He could be, when he speaks of the heart of kings, speaking of the mysterious nature of their counsel. Uh, let me say this, politicians not making any sense didn't start uh, this past year or the year before or the year before that. Uh, what kings, what rulers have done have always baffled the average individual. But Solomon, I think, is speaking of this in a positive way. And he's saying this, that there needs to be a depth to the counsels of a king. There needs to be some wisdom in what he does. Beyond just his own superficial knowledge, Solomon knew this better than anyone, for the Bible tells us that outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was the wisest person to ever live. That God bestowed upon him a divine wisdom that was unique amongst all other kings. And here's what he understood. He understood this, that a king can't just act rashly. Listen, he must have a plan for what he's doing. You say, preacher, what a, how's that comfort me? I'm here, I'm lost today, I know I'm lost. How does that get me a word comfort uh, th this morning? I'd say this, it's true that you're in a mess you can't get yourself out of. It's true there's nothing you cannot do, that, that you can do to save yourself. You can't fix your sin problem. Even if you could commit to never do unrighteousness again in your life, which you can't promise to do. But even if you could, how are you going to deal with the sins you've already committed? It's true that... Just as you want to go to heaven when you die, God wants you to go to heaven when you die, and He loves you and He cares about you. You say, preacher, that's all true. I agree with that. Well, now, wait a minute. Where's that word of hope and comfort? I see the mystery of His plan. Can I say it this way? He had a plan. He had a plan. You know, the Bible tells us this about the Lord Jesus, that He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before there was ever sin, there was a Savior. Before there was ever a problem, there was a plan. <laughs> hey, listen, before there was ever a lost man, there was a Lamb of God, ready and willing and ready and able to go and to pay for mankind's sin. Uh, Paul communicates the vastness and depth of the mystery of God's plan in the book of Ephesians. He says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 9, having made known unto us the mystery of His will. That phrase, mystery, in the Bible does not denote something that has to be puzzled out or figured out, but it means something that at one time could not have been known, but now has been disclosed by God to us. In other words, it's something that, like Solomon said about the heart of kings, it was unsearchable. Uh, they could have searched and studied all they wanted and they never would have really clearly understood what God was doing in Old Testament times in this world. But Paul says now in Jesus Christ, we know what God's doing. He says according to the good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself. That in the I know there's some big words here, hang with me, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, 
Now, what does that mean? The dispensation of the fullness of the time. When God pours out the fullness of His plan. When He discloses to us exactly what He's doing. What is He doing? Listen to what it says. That He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. In other words, I'd say this, that before you ever knew you had a sin problem, God already had a sin payment made in Jesus Christ. You may not have a plan to get yourself out of your sin problem. And I would say this, if you've got a plan that don't include Jesus Christ, it's a bad plan. It's a plan that won't work. It's insufficient. If your plan is, I'm going to go to church, I'm sorry to report to you. I, listen, and I'm proud you're here today. I'm honored you're here today. But coming to church ain't going to save you. It ain't going to deal with your sin problem. You say, I'll turn over a new leaf, preacher. Well, yeah, but what about all them old dead leaves you've been leaving behind you all your life? Even if you could turn over that new leaf, you know what you'd find? It's just as prone to corruption as the old leaf. You'd find that only a new life in Christ can change your life, can, can change your destiny, can change your behavior and your character. Here's the reality. Whatever plan you may have, be it baptism, good works, church membership, making God promises, trying to be a better person, studying out some form of religion or whatever it might be, all that is insufficient. But I've got good news for you. God already had a plan. And He already worked His plan in the person of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And the payment has already been made. And now all you have to do is receive, accept, and believe on that payment for you. Uh, Paul, in disclosing this and describing it sort of in Romans 11, he has him a glory moment for a second. He says in verse number 32, God hath concluded them all in unbelief, talking about uh, Jew and Gentile alike, that He might have mercy upon all. In other words, the Lord is, uh, has revealed all of mankind to be guilty so that He could have mercy upon all of mankind. And Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Listen, you don't have to sit around and wonder about who God is. God has told you who He is. You don't have to sit around and wonder what God can do about your sin, about your life, and about your brokenness. God has already told you what He has done and will do about your sin and your life and your brokenness. I see the mystery of His plan, but then I think also there's another way that Solomon could be speaking about the heart. He could be talking about the wisdom and counsel within a king's heart, but he could also be talking about the affections, desires, and passions within a king's heart. In other words, he could be talking about the plan, but he could also be talking about a king's love. The compassion that He has towards His people. And you know what it reminds me of? Uh, it reminds me not only the mystery of His plan, but the mercy of His payment. You know where the payment came for your sins and mine? Straight out of the heart of God. Straight out of the heart of God. And there's so many ways that we could describe that. I mean, given the fact that He gave His Son, I'll tell you this, there's not much closer to my heart in this world uh, than my family and my children in particular. Uh, if you ask me to give up, I'd give up just about anything before I give up my child. But God gave His only begotten Son that we wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Uh, the book of Romans says it clearly in Romans chapter 8. You know, I'm just thinking about that language there in, in our text in verse 3. The heaven for height. You can't search out the height of the heavens. The, the earth for depth. And of course, that's poetic language. But He's saying you can't dig the very heart and center of it. And He's saying the heart of kings, is, it's unsearchable. You'll never really know all the love that resides in the king's heart. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
In other words, you say, preacher, where's this word of comfort? It's in this. God has a plan. And His plan was to pay for your sin debt in the death of His own Son. How could we ever accuse God of not loving us? That's why I say it's, it, it's an infantile notion. It, it, it's a statement that could only be made by somebody that's not acquainted with the God of the Bible. And I, I didn't say that that doesn't believe on the God of the Bible. I mean, he, listen, even if you even if you reject the notion of God, God as He is set forth in the blessed truth of the Word of God is not a hateful or angry God. He is a just God. He is a God that is wrathful against unrighteousness. But He is also a God that paid the ultimate price so that His wrath might be abated, so that His justice might be satisfied, so that His holiness might be maintained. He didn't ask you to make the payment. He said, I'll make the payment. (laughs) He had every right to say, you make the payment. It's your sin. But He said, I'll make the payment. Because you cannot pay for your sin debt. So there's a word of comfort here, but now wait a minute. Somebody, if they read that, they might be tempted to believe, okay, well, Christ died for all men, and that's what the Bible teaches. He tasted death for every man. So it must mean that every man is right with God. But we see in this passage a word of consideration. Look at verse number 4. He says this, Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the fine. Now again, a finer is a silversmith. And the imagery is pretty plain here, right? Before the silver can be made into what it needs to be, the impurities have to be removed from it. Now, what's this word of consideration? Well, I would say you need to consider this morning, if you believe that you're just de facto right with God by virtue of the fact that you live and breathe and have a social security number or don't anymore, I don't even know, but unless you believe that that's enough, just existing... God's Word discloses here, but there's a problem with the human heart, and that's the corruption that lives within it. Here's the thing. If you and I weren't sinners, number one, we wouldn't need a Savior. And so if we say, well, I believe on the Savior, and I love Jesus, and and I'm a Christian, then we are de facto admitting that we are sinners. That's why the preaching of the cross is an offense to them which perish. It's an offense because it discloses to mankind that he's a sinner, that he needs to be saved. Because you don't need a Savior unless you are a sinner. But let's imagine for a moment that when you got saved, uh, that uh, God only saved you from that point backwards. Put you on the layaway plan, right? Like down at the Target. Put you on parole. Put you on good behavior. Put you on probation and said, all right, from this point forward, you've got the driver's seat. Just never sin again. You know what we'd find? We'd find we couldn't take two steps without breaking that promise to God. One of, I think, and I want to be careful here. I understand there's a biblical principle for vowing a vow to the Lord. Uh, the Bible says if a man makes a vow to the Lord, he ought to defer not to pay that vow. Uh, but can I just be honest with you? I don't know that, I don't know that in the currency of God's economy that our promises mean a lot anyway. I mean, God just already knows who and what we are. You ever had someone lie to your face and you knew they were lying while they were lying to you? <laughs> Or maybe saying something to you that they meant sincerely, but you knew them well enough to know that it was never going to happen. I sort of wonder if maybe sometimes we come to God and say, God, I promise I'm never gonna, I promise I'm gonna, I promise I'm gonna, and God in pity, in mercy, in tenderness looks at us and says, yeah, but son, I know you better than you know you. Here's the truth of the matter. The problem with the transformation of a man's heart is the impurity that lives within it. So if we were to believe, I'm just okay with God because I'm a good person, the major flaw in that thinking is you and I are not good people. Instinctively, inherently, we are unrighteous, we are unjust. So here's the issue. The payment has been made for sin, but the question is, has it been applied to your heart and your life? 
You say, well, preacher, God God loves me and He's going to make me what He wants me to be. Here's the problem. The silversmith ain't going to work with that metal until it's pure. It ain't going to work with that metal until it's pure. You say, preacher, what makes that metal pure? The heat, the fire, the flame, uh, which are a picture of the judgment of God. Now, we can't bear and withstand the judgment of God fully for our sin in our life, but Jesus Christ did bear that judgment of God for our sin. In other words, we got a sin problem. And we can claim that we're just going to be a better person. But will we find that an impossibility? I see here that, number one, there's sin. It must be removed for transformation. Your sin has to be dealt with before you can be a better person. It is not enough to say, I will deal with my sin by being a better person. Because you are in bondage to your sin. Just like I'm in bondage to my sin if I let it have mastery in my life. And for the lost individual, as we said earlier, uh, the, the devil points at those chains and calls it freedom. But it's not freedom. It's not freedom. And a man has no wherewithal to free himself. Another must free him. Another must turn the shackles. Another must break the chains. And so you can say, well, I'll just be a better person. But you'll find that you don't have the ability to do so. In fact, if you're going to be a better person, here's God's process for doing that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm just going to read a little bit here. It says in verse 1, And you, talking about lost people, you hath he quickened. The word quickened means to make alive. He gave you life. You hath he quickened, and here's why, who were dead in trespasses and sins. The lost man's problem is not that he doesn't quite make the cut. The problem is he's dead. His sins have slain him. There's deadness within him. The life of God isn't alive within him. He can make promises to God, uh, but they're as good as the promises of a dead man. He doesn't have the means or the wherewithal to accomplish them. He says this, this is what it looked like when you were in your deadness, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Isn't it funny that the world calls that freedom? Let me read that again. Does that sound like freedom? In time past, ye walked according to the course of this world. That's like a beast of burden plowing in a furrow, right? According to the prince of the power of the air. A prince is someone with authority. Sounds like you want not run in your own life. It says the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Doesn't sound like they were running their own spirit, but it was the spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, not doing what we wanted, doing what the flesh wanted, and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. Not by choice. By nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God. This is how God fixed it. You say, preacher, I was lost. I was undone. How can God change it? But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together by uh, with uh, Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, here, long about verse 10, 
after we after we've done been been uh, exposed to be lost sinners in the deadness of our sins, unable to help ourselves, unable to change ourselves, but the grace of God through the sacrifice of Christ has came crashing into our life and world like a wrecking ball, has dealt with our sin problem, has saved us, reclaimed us, redeemed us for the grace of God, and made us sit together in heavenly places. Now he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. See, here's the truth of the matter. You say, I'll fix my sin by being a better person. But you can't be a better person until God deals with your sin problem. That being His workmanship, that comes a long ways after being quickened. It comes after God has given us new life. So a word of consideration, their sin must be removed for transformation. But now look what it says in verse 5. He says this, Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. He looks at Rehoboam and he says this. Here's the problem, Rehoboam. You cannot have a throne of righteousness and a throne room of wickedness. You can't have both. If you're going to have a throne of righteousness, Rehoboam, you've got to have a throne room of righteousness. You've got to put out all of the wicked, all of the corrupt, all of the cowardly and craven and evil counselors if you want your throne to be established in righteousness. He is showing an incompatibility between the judicial desire and the practical reality. He's saying these two things, they don't go together. I would say this. If we're going to stand in the throne room of God, there has to be something done about our wicked heart. Let me say it this way. Their sin must be removed for transformation, but number two, their sin must be removed for justification. In other words, for us to stand and for us to be just and God to be just, we have to have something done about our sin problem. Now, if we just want to be just in our own sight, and if God were to dismiss and ignore our iniquity, our unrighteousness, then we might appear just, but He would be very unjust. If God were to maintain His justness and His justice, He could just slay us, destroy us, put the sin out of His sight, and then He would be just, but we would not. But here's the problem. God wants justice, but He also wants mercy. How's He going to do that? He's got to deal with our sin problem. And He's done that through Jesus Christ. Listen to what the book of Romans says. I, I, I jotted down a few verses here. Let me just read through them. They'll paint a picture to you. Romans chapter 3. Listen to what verse 10 says. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Go ahead, just mark that down. Tattoo that on the back of your eyelids so that when you go to bed at night, you see it. Uh, none of us are righteous. We want to get all bowed up. How dare somebody say that I am an unrighteous person. No, we ain't none of us righteous. I ain't saying you're worse than your neighbor. I'm saying we're all deserving of hell. There's none righteous. No, not one. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. This is why God gave His Word, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Uh, listen, we're not just accused and waiting trial. We are condemned already. For all have sinned, verse 23, and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. None of us stands whole in and of ourselves. But here's what God did for the sinner. The sinner that receives Christ being justified freely, the Bible says, by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. That's a, that, listen, that, that's a $10 word, but hang with me. You know what that word propitiation means? It means a substitute. A substitute. We deserve to die for our sin. But a substitute was sent in. Hey, He subbed us off of the cross. 
and sent His Son in to take our place. A propitiation through faith in His blood to declare, here's how God did it, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. Not to declare our righteousness, to declare His righteousness. That He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So in other words, us in our natural condition, we have a sin problem that we can't deal with, we can't fix, we can't address. But God, in His mercy, gave His Son on the cross of Calvary as a substitute for our sin payment that He might be able to look and His justness has been satisfied, but we have been justified and the righteousness of Christ has been put to our account. We see a word of, uh, of consideration. Then look at verse number 6 with me. And I'm going to hurry a little bit because I'm hungry too. Somebody say amen to that. Verse number 6 says this, Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king. Now here he's been talking to kings about kings, but now he turns to the subject. He, he turns to the petitioner and he says, now here's what you need to do. He says, Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king and stand not in the place of great men. For better it is that it be said unto thee, Come up hither than that thou shouldest be put lower in the presence. I, notice what this says. Man, I think there's something here. What about you? In the presence of the prince, not a prince, of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. wonder who that prince is. I bet he's the Lord of glory. I bet he's the Lord Jesus Christ that Solomon had in mind when he said this. Here, you know what we find? We find a word of caution. He's saying, be careful how you approach the king because he has to be approached in the right way. Some would say, well, you know, God should just, you know, some, some people treat it like God's a talent scout that is really supremely impressed with us. God be happy to have me on His team, you know. I got all these talents and abilities and I can do all this stuff. And Hey, listen, here's the reality. We do not presume. You know the problem, let me just say it this way. You know the problem in what's described here is one that is not great is presuming to be on the same level as one that is great. He's saying, don't walk into the house and go sit on the throne like you're the king because you're not the king. And he says, here's what's going to happen. If you go in and sit on the throne, sooner or later, the king's going to show up. And when he does, he's not going to be pleased that somebody's sitting in his seat. And he is not going to abide that treason and treachery. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to take you out of that seat and he's going to put you down where you belong. You know the problem with the world's concept, this idea that God's just the big man upstairs and our buddy and he's just, you know, uh, he's just this frail, old, you know, bearded uh, fella, you know, frail, barely frazzled, barely in his mind, you know, like a prisoner or something. You know the problem with, with that concept of God is it presumes that God is on our level or we're on his level. One of the two. Here's the problem. You and I, were not on the same level as God. Now, somebody would say, well, preacher, that's awful. That's terrible. Anyone would think that. Oh, tons of people think it. Because you, you talk to them about their soul and they'll say things like this. Me and God are okay. We're all right. Why do you think that? What makes you believe you and God are okay? Me and God, we, you know, we're, we're, we're cool with each other. We're fine with each other. We're okay with each other. You're talking about Him like He's a peer. He's not a peer. He's the God of glory. He sits on the circle of the earth. He reigns surrounded by cherubs that aren't even in their perfection able to look on His holiness. It is so majestic. In other words, here is the disposition, the attitude that so many people that are lost today have. Me and God are probably okay. I don't have to do anything about my sin problem. One of these days, I'm going to die and I'm going to see God and everything's going to be okay. 
It's a presumptuous spirit. We would say this, notice the prideful attitude that is rejected. Uh, God, one of these days you're going to find different. There are a lot of people think they're going to heaven that are not. And listen, I, I'm not trying, anybody in here that's saved, I ain't trying to get you to doubt it or wonder about it. But I'm just telling you the truth. There's a lot of people in the world think they're on their way to heaven that aren't. Christ talked to them and said, there's going to come a day you're going to stand before me and you're going to say, Lord, Lord, uh, we have cast out devils in thy name. We have done great miracles, great works in thy name. And the Lord's going to look at you and He's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They knew about Him and thought that was good enough. But He said, you never knew me. You never had a personal relationship with me. You had a very public relationship with the concept of God, but you never had a personal relationship with God Himself. There's a lot of folks think they're on their way to heaven and they just think they're going to traipse into the throne room of God and just be fine. Solomon says you can't approach a king that way. Notice the proper approach that is accepted. He says this, it is better. It is better, is it? Uh, I got that all messed up. Better is it that it be said unto thee, come up hither, than that thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. So in this interesting, Solomon says you got two choices. You can come into the high place thinking you're worthy and you'll be cast out. Or you can come into a low place and the king will call you to come up hither into the place of honor. What a picture that is of how we approach the Lord. If we in presumption say, well, me and God are fine and I'm a good person. I don't know why I need Jesus and I don't know why I need forgiveness or whatever that is. If we do that, there's going to come a day He's going to pluck us off of that throne that we have in our life and in our heart and cast us down. But here's what will happen if we'll come to Him like the publican did, by the way, that came to him. You remember the story, don't you? When the Lord Jesus, he looked over and he saw two men. He saw a Pharisee and he saw a publican, which was a wicked man, an unrighteous man, a common and profane man. And and that that publican, he lifted up and, and, and rent his garment and beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then that Pharisee looks over at that publican and says, Lord, I thank thee that I am not as this publican. You know what the difference was in what they was looking at? The publican was looking at God. The Pharisee was looking at the publican. As long as your concept of righteousness is relative to whatever person worse than you you can find, you're always going to think you're good enough. But that's why the Bible does not say all have sinned and come short of the glory of Kevin. It doesn't say all have sinned and come short of the glory of Susan. It says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yeah, you can find somebody worse than you. We all can, except some poor old soul somewhere. And he don't even know it. But we're not judged according to other people, our peers, whoever it might be. We're judged according to the righteousness of God. So if we come in humility to the Lord, and you know, the Bible says this in James chapter 4, verse number 6 says, God resisteth the proud. God fights actively against the pride of mankind, but He giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore unto God. You know, it is a distinctly satanic thing to try to put ourselves on the same level as God and assume His throne to try to walk in spiritually into the throne room of God and say, I don't need a God, I'm God. You know, that was the very first sin ever committed in all of creation and existence was when Satan himself said, I will ascend and be like the Most High. He echoed this same sin in the garden when he told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. It's always been the desire of Satan to displace God on his throne. And that's why it is likewise the desire of Satan for your life and mine that we displace God on his throne. Because after all, what is a lost person but a puppet of Satan's wishes and will? There's a word of caution given here, and then there's a word of counsel. And I'm going to mention this. We're going to go eat some cookout stuff. Uh, look at verse number 8. It says this. 
There seems, by the way, to be a distinct change here. But he says, go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof when thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself and discover not a secret to another, lest he that heareth it put thee to shame and thine infamy turn not away. Now this is basically civic counsel that is being given. And Solomon says, don't go rushing into a court of law accusing your neighbor in a hostile way. Because if you don't have all of your information correct, you may be put to shame. You may have the very things that you sought to disabuse him of and take from him taken from you. And in the end thereof, you'll not know what to do. He's saying this, don't rush to the judgment hall until you're ready because there's nothing beyond the judgment. It's the last recourse. It's the last option. He's saying don't go in antagonizing your neighbor and having no place or hope of help beyond it. Say, preacher, that's interesting. What does that have to do with me? Well, I think it's a word of counsel even to the lost individual to not antagonize the Lord. Because listen, God's your only help and hope. There is no judgment beyond Him. There is no court of appeals beyond Him. If you in hostility push Him away, antagonize Him, shake your fist at God and say, uh, like they did in days of old, we'll not have this man to rule over us. Understand, there's no place to go after that. You're pushing away your only hope. What happens in the end thereof, thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. You know the problem with saying I'm good and I'm moral and I'm righteous and I don't need God? You know the problem with that? It ain't true. And one of these days, that's going to be well known. It's not true. We can say it's true. We can promise it's true. We can shout it's true. We can get a whole bunch of other people together to clap for us and say it's true. But it's still not true. And one of these days when judgment goes forth, we'll be shown that it's not true. Here's the problem on that day. It'll be too late. Don't antagonize the Lord. And number two, look what he says here in verse 9. He says, debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself and discover not a secret to another. Now, this is simple. He's saying, listen, if you have a problem with your neighbor, go to him directly and deal with him directly. Don't go to other people to have that matter dealt with. Lest he that heareth it put thee to shame in thine infamy turn not away. But now, wait a minute. If God is the neighbor back in verse number 8, what about if God's the neighbor in verse number 9? And he's saying this, not only don't antagonize the Lord, but number two, don't avoid the Lord. Go to Him directly. Deal with Him directly. Far too many people only have a secondary relationship with God. And can I tell you, a secondary relationship is not good enough. They know people that know God. <laughs> They're around people that know God, that talk about God, but they personally don't know Him. You've heard me say this a thousand times, but let me go ahead and break the record once more. Uh, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. You're either a child of God directly, personally, transformatively, or you're not. There is no in-between. And so, you know what God says? He says, listen, don't put it off. Don't antagonize. Don't avoid. Deal with it today before it's too late. I'm not going to preach it, but, but notice these next few verses. I think they remind us of a few things. I, I told you I'm not preaching it. Say, so, preacher, how does this take place? Verse 11 a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver as an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold. So is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. You know what that reminds me of? The gospel that saved me. 
That's a word fitly spoken in a perfect time. Verse 13, that makes me think about the preacher that told me, it says, as the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him free refresheth the soul of his masters. It reminds me not only of the gospel, but of the one that told me the gospel and shared the gospel to me. And then it reminds me of this, of what it says, verse number 14, whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. A cloud and a wind without rain, it looks like a storm, but there ain't no storm there. Can I ask you something? Is there anything in there, in your heart, in your life, is there anything in there? Or is it just like rainless clouds? Just something to show others, but not anything substantive in there. I'd say this, if there's not, don't antagonize the Lord. Don't mock Him. Don't, don't, don't uh, scorn him. Uh, don't, don't, don't be cynical to him and don't avoid him. Deal with it today because I'll tell you this, there is no judgment beyond that. There is no opportunity beyond that. There is no hope or help beyond that. There is no appeal beyond that. If you won't let him help you, there's no one else that can help you. Come to him today. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And here would be a good thing. If you're burdened for a loved one, won't you come down and pray for them this morning? I don't have to know who they are. God knows who they are. But you ought to lift their, their name out to the Lord and ask God to work in their heart, in their life, to show them these truths in a way that they understand, in a way that is meaningful, impactful, powerful in their life, in a convincing way that they might believe on the Lord before it's too late. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name. With